Welcome to Insurance Uncut, a show all about insurance. Each week, we'll be taking a different topic that impacts the insurance industry and discussing it with our guest. If you work in the general insurance market or have an interest in insurance, this podcast is for you. I'm Charles Cronier. And I'm Jessica Clark. And Insurance Uncut is brought to you by the insurance team at LCP. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. We would love to hear your thoughts on the show or any topic suggestions, so please get in touch to share your ideas and feedback. Let's kick off with this week's episode. Well, good morning, Jess. Here we are, second episode. Yeah, I'm really pleased to be joined by Laura Hoburn today. So Laura joined LCP as a principal at the end of 2020. So she is currently on the IFOA GI Research and Thought Leadership Committee, the London Market Actuaries Group Committee, and the Towards the Optimal Reserving Processes Working Group. Laura has a particular interest in increasing the value that actuaries bring to the business. And I'll be meeting Laura for the first time tomorrow in person, which is very exciting. So welcome to the podcast, Laura. Hi, Jess and Charles. Really excited to be here today. Great. Laura, we only met for the first time in person a few weeks ago, didn't we? Having worked a huge amount together over the last sort of six to eight months. Yeah, I can't quite believe it. Yeah, it was very strange. A lot of my new colleagues or new-ish colleagues I have only met over the summer due to COVID. I think the thing I always find quite interesting is guessing how tall people are going to be. I feel like that's one thing you can't gauge at all virtually. And I find myself consistently surprised when I meet new colleagues as to how tall they are. So today, Laura, we're going to be talking about the sharing economy and how it is changing the insurance industry. So I guess we should just start off by maybe giving an overview of what the sharing economy is and how it's kind of developed over the recent years. The sharing economy is an economic model defined as a peer-to-peer based activity, acquiring, providing or sharing access to goods and services that's usually facilitated by an online platform that connects buyers and sellers. Also here it referred by a number of other terms such as the gig economy, peer-to-peer economy and various other things. It enables people and organisations to earn some profit from underutilised assets or services. Technologies assisted the growth massively to its current level, and the momentum will just accelerate from here. One source estimated the value of the sharing economy in the US will grow to $335 billion by 2025, so certainly not a small amount. I think the best way to explain it and demonstrate its growth might be just to give you a few examples, as you might be familiar with one or two of the names around. So examples include renting a room in someone's house when they don't need it. So you might have heard of Airbnb. It has 4 million listings, but it doesn't own a single room. Or hiring a car and driver, Uber, facilitated with more than 10 billion trips, yet it doesn't own its own cars. You can rent someone's car, things like hire car. On-demand delivery, you can order food and have it delivered to you. So again, things like Deliveroo. That's one that's very close to my heart. And (laughs) I was going to say, during lockdown, Deliveroo has really been our friend, especially when we discovered that we could order groceries from Waitrose and the co-op on Deliveroo. That was a game changer. Oh, wow. I did not know that. I very much use it for my takeaways, but I didn't know you could order the groceries as well with it. Always true. Learn something new every day. (laughs) 
There's other things. So you can get someone to run errands for you on demand services. So examples such as TaskRabbit. And you can even share things like clothes now. You can hire clothes. We've had high profile cases recently with Carrie Johnson hiring her clothes that she wore to the G7 summit. Other things, I was at Motorway Services the other day. I saw an advert just saying, are you tired? Added another driver temporarily to your car insurance. And I actually thought, what a great idea. The number of times over the years where there's been a designated driver and they've been stuck because it's too much hassle to add anyone on or you just didn't think to do it before you went away. And now you can actually in just a few minutes, partway through the journey, if you've decided you've had enough, you can actually add another driver on. And I reckon that could be quite lucrative for insurers as well, because, yes, they're taking on some extra risk. For the amount of extra risk they're taking on just for a few hours, they could probably charge a fairly chunky premium. Will people be willing to pay it, I'm guessing? I would certainly be willing to pay quite a bit for just a couple of hours or three hours or something. If you multiplied that over the year, it would be a huge annual premium. But if they actually said to me, actually, would you pay £20 to have someone added on for an hour or two, I might actually think that was worth it. Yeah, the thing that would always stop me is just the thought that it would be a hassle, that they wouldn't be able to give me an immediate answer, that the person I'm adding would have to provide huge amounts of information not readily to hand. Maybe that's a barrier for the insurer as well, knowing that they're not taking on very risky additional drivers. The sharing economy has been around properly now for probably about a decade. It's rapidly growing and evolving, but it does also face some significant challenges in the form of regulatory uncertainty, availability of insurance, and also concerns about any abuses that could take place. How do legal cases, for example, the case Uber drivers have brought against Uber about being identified as workers and not self-employed, change the sharing economy? I think some of that could change it slightly. The Uber case has been going on for, I don't know, I think it was about five years. And it was earlier this year that the Supreme Court did confirm that they were workers and therefore drivers were subject to employment rights. I think it is that, but it's also a whole host of regulation and legal aspects. And when it comes down to things like liability and who is liable for the different things, if there are complaints Who's responsible for those? Is it the owner of the thing? Is it the platform? And exactly where does it sit within the business? I can imagine there must be a number of very interesting insurance angles to the sharing economy. What are some of the ones that you've sort of been aware of? Well, one of the things with insurance is that data isn't readily available for this new world. So typically policies are annual, they're not particularly flexible. So the data for this very much usage-based insurance isn't necessarily available and the risks have changed. There's also some issues around who the consumer actually is. Is it the user of the product or the service? Is it the provider of the product of the service? Is it the facilitator and the platform itself? So who is it actually who needs the insurance? And there's different insurance that's probably needed for each party. And as I mentioned earlier about legal liability, where actually is that legal liability sitting? And also the concept of insurable interest. It's difficult to argue that a platform such as Airbnb or Uber has an insurable interest in something if they don't own it, but it is possible they could still be held liable as the facilitator of it. Absolutely. I think with it being such a new area, I don't think we've really had enough test cases either yet to really understand where the issues are. 
And I guess if some sort of insurance cover is needed, it's impractical to expect the end user of the product to consciously take out insurance. It just needs to be wrapped up in whatever they pay for the service, doesn't it? Yes. And different platforms at the moment do different things, which I think adds to the complication more generally. There are some platforms that include full insurance automatically. Some require, for example, their drivers to take out specific policies that would cover it. Some make no mention of insurance at all. So we're not really sure whether it's in or out. And some include some level of insurance, but perhaps not enough. So an example is Airbnb, where they have a host's guarantee type of insurance. They make it clear on their website that any cover provided might not be sufficient and that you need to ensure that you have your own insurance in place. But many people do assume that between their own sort of household insurance and the Airbnb insurance that they're fully covered. Laura, tell us a bit about some of the insurers that are active in this market and those that are kind of making headway in providing cover in the sharing economy. Some of the big established insurers, such as Zurich, Allianz, Munich Re and Lloyds. But there are the newer ones who operate really differently and specifically aimed at this market. And these are pretty interesting. So Zigo is a good example of this. They only started about five years ago. They've covered 200,000 vehicles now. And they provide motor cover for this market. So delivery drivers and private hire, that sort of thing. Their aim is to be really simple and flexible. They've also got lots of really cool things they've done with partners. For example, I think it's fully integrated with some of the delivery driver apps. So you can get cover for just the periods you work. And presumably through this, Seagull is also building up a huge bank of data to use for their future development. Yeah, I imagine that's a great feature of this sort of insurance is that you probably collect a lot more usable data, which could then, as an insurer, give you confidence in your pricing and your risk management going forward. You're certainly collecting a huge amount of data from these platforms, and that is really different. So you don't have the historical bank of data, but you'll be collecting a lot more currently on your true risk exposures to be able to use going forward. And historically, insurance isn't always rated necessarily perfectly aligned to the risk and the appropriate exposures, whereas there is an opportunity with this and with usage-based insurance to actually align that exposure and risk with the prices much more. That's a very good point. I guess, can you see this having any changes to companies' risk management processes? I think they'll certainly need to consider it and have appropriate governance in place. It is going to be an emerging risk and they will need to do it. Companies with good risk management frameworks will be able to deal with this sort of risk through their current frameworks, but looking at the different risks involved and just taking consideration of that. How do you see this impacting personal and commercial lines differently? I think this is an interesting point about the sharing economy and one of the key issues with insurance at the moment, that insurers think very much about personal lines and commercial lines, and these are separate things. For example, household policies will typically exclude rentals or personal motor policies will exclude business use. But in the sharing economy, the lines become a little blurred between that personal and commercial enterprise. So, for example, take someone who occasionally rents out their tools, but they drive to deliver the tool to the user. Is that journey then considered business use? And would they have even thought about what insurance might be needed for that journey to drop off their tool? And then while it's rented out, if there is an accident with the tool, who's liable for that? What insurance will react? Will that need some separate insurance entirely? 
I think there are impacts of personal lines. I think there are impacts of commercial lines. But more importantly, it's actually stopping necessarily thinking about these all separately and think about it as a whole. And that's where the insurance companies need to actually think about what it is they're now insuring rather than trying to fit what they're insuring into their current model. That's interesting. I suppose taking that a step further, to what extent do you feel that the opportunities and risks to be insured are sort of divided between property type risks versus liability type risks? I think there's both. I think there are the property risks and the liability risks. I think the property risks are probably slightly better defined and better understood. And I think the end users and the people who are renting out the things will be thinking about the property risk. I think the liability side actually could be a far greater risk, but is probably one that isn't understood by the consumers as well and probably isn't one that is even considered quite as much, even though it could be the one with the far, far bigger liability in the end. Is there a risk here for insurers that customers think they're covered for something like the example you were just giving where someone is taking the tools and the insurer could be put in an awkward position, I guess, where the T's and C's might not cover something, but the customer thinks it does? Absolutely. I think there's definitely a gap in insurance for that very reason. People just assume it's covered. They won't even think in that example, many people won't even think of that as a business use. And it is, and it is excluded on many policies. So there is going to be that gap in cover. Conversely, there's also going to be some duplication of cover where people have actually taken out personal policies and business type policies together. When you are on the way to something or on the way back from something, if there's an accident, exactly what cover is then covering you and how would that play out in practice? So there's some complexities there that would just make the process a little more complicated. Presumably, technology is a really important part for insurers wanting to succeed in the sharing economy. Yes, I think it is. I think technology is essential moving forward, whether it's sharing economy or other places at all. I know I work in insurance and very sadly find it fascinating. But still, when it comes to buying my own insurance, I want to do something quick, easy. I don't want to spend ages doing it. I find it quite boring. For me, just on regular insurance, I think technology is important and the customer journey is important. But for the sharing economy, it's even more vital. The users of these platforms are so used to having that really good technology in place and at their fingertips and being able to do it wherever they are, that the insurance for it needs to be aligned to that. Do you see these changes as like a positive or a negative to the insurance market more widely? Overall, I think it's positive, not just to the insurance market, but to the economy overall. I personally like flexibility and things that are very easy to use and customer focused. Also, a lot of these sharing platforms are able to adapt and move very quickly as things change. They're very much startup mentality, tech savvy organizations. As I said before, it is important for the less exciting aspects to keep pace and get the necessary attention as well, the regulation, the insurance, and so on, to ensure the risks are managed. More generally, I think there's a lot of benefits, but there are some downsides too to the sharing economy. I think some of the benefits are you can work the hours you want to, to fit around another job, for example, or studying or caring responsibilities. You can rent something out when you don't need it, so your house or your tools. The recipient can get what they want when they want, pretty much. They are simple. 
they are good for money. There's an opportunity for owners or the workers to make some money, but also for the users to get things for a good price. And there's also a social environmental aspect that you don't necessarily always think of. So certain services can help with the environment, reduce waste, improve sustainability. So things like lift sharing, reduces cars on the road and emissions. There's the clothes sharing sites, so reducing that sort of go and buy something and throw it out culture and sharing toys such as Whirly. There are downsides. There's been a lot of negative stories around zero hours contracts. It isn't entirely clear the legal status of the gig economy in terms of self-employed versus employed. You've mentioned the long-running court case with Uber already, and that regulation just hasn't kept pace with the growth of the sharing economy. There is a lack of governmental oversight, so it is open to some abuse. Do you think it's inevitable that the sharing economy will become a bigger part of the UK market? Yes, absolutely. I think it's inevitable. If you look at the growth over the last five to 10 years, it's absolutely enormous and it doesn't appear to be slowing down. There's been a real shift to paying for access and usage rather than ownership. Through the last 18 months or so with COVID, some services such as ride sharing and accommodation have seen a drop for very obvious reasons. But actually, there's a lot more services popping up and people who perhaps wouldn't previously have been considering using this type of model have really seen the benefits of things like home delivery and errand services. Another indicator, the Sharing Economy UK, which is a trade body representing UK's sharing economy businesses, is now from this year part of the Confederation of British Industry and a new sharing economy council has been set up within the CBI's main governing body, which shows just how important they think it is to the British economy. And also, just based on my own personal experience of these services, those of you who know me will be very aware I'm not particularly ahead of the times in my use of apps, but I regularly use platforms like Uber and Deliveroo. I'm also very typical actuary. I'm quite cautious, but I've booked accommodation through HomeAway and Airbnb. There's always that panic just before you arrive of whether it actually exists, but so far so good. (laughs) And I just say, if I'm comfortable using these platforms, then other people will be. And those younger than me will have grown up with this. I guess, Laura, what is the scope for growth if insurers can adapt to the growing demand of the sharing economy? There are opportunities for insurers who can adapt, certainly. I also think it's really important to bring diversity into the conversation here. We're effectively talking about the changes in consumer behaviour, both in the underlying products and services and then into the insurance buying habits. And firms who thrive, I think, will be those who are open to new ideas and alternative viewpoints and who have a workforce and people in positions of power who match society. So a cross-section of age, race, gender, everything. People making decisions on insurance products who actually use and know people who use the sharing economy. That's a great point. There is also potentially a lot of very rich data available from this segment. So huge opportunities to really use this along with the adoption of technology, analytics, machine learning to understand the exposure and risk profile better. Although this does come with a bit of a health warning, use of data and any ethical considerations, not wanting to create an insurance underclass. Laura, earlier you touched on the fact that the sharing economy could have a positive impact on the environment by saving usage of assets and maybe reducing emissions, etc. I suppose that makes it an attractive area for insurers to get involved in, given that insurers are now very keen themselves 
to have a net zero impact in the risks that they underwrite. Yes, I think everyone is a lot more aware of sort of ESG type issues these days and very keen to support them. I think the general increasing social conscience of people will increase the use of some of these services and will make them more attractive for people like insurers who can provide those services too. I guess also what's the one thing you would like listeners working insurers to kind of take away from this? I'm going to cheat and give more than one, but they're inherently linked and I'll be quick. So. <laughs> Focus on the consumer and their genuine wants and needs in both the core product and the user experience. Consider approaching things differently and also diversity is your friend. Thanks so much, Laura. That's been a really interesting and insightful conversation. I guess just do you have any recommendations for something people could read, watch or listen to that you've really enjoyed recently? doesn't necessarily have to be insurance focused. I've been completely enthralled by the Olympics and Paralympics this summer, but I guess that's almost over, although I'm actually missing a key race right now with Maisie <laughs> Summers-Newton, who my sister used to teach, actually, going for another gold medal in the swimming. Oh, that's so lovely. It's so nice to see young athletes come through who would have been really inspired by London 2012 now as well. I've also recently read a book called Unnatural Causes. It's written by Dr. Richard Shepard, who's one of Britain's top forensic pathologists. And it's a really fascinating look into the world of autopsies, which I don't really know about beyond TV crime dramas. Bit of an odd thing to read, but it's really interesting if you're after something a bit different. Fantastic. That's all we have time for this week on Insurance Uncut. Please join us in two weeks' time for another episode. This podcast was brought to you by LCP. We'd like to thank Nikki Freegard, Deepika Misra, and Matthew Passy for helping to produce this episode. Also, we would like to give a special thanks to Nisha Gogner for helping to get this podcast up and running. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.